you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Hello and welcome to Bad With Money I'm Gabby Dunn This is my show Okay, I'm so excited because today we're going to get into reparations, a deep topic that I am stoked to be talking about on the show because uh, we get to have Professor William Darity on. If you've read the book Bad With Money, uh, I interviewed him a ton for the book. He's the director of the Samuel Dubois Cook Center for Social Equity in Durham, North Carolina. And basically, he's like an expert. He's an economist and he's an expert on reparations. And it was so, so awesome to even get to talk to him for the book. And it's so, so awesome that I get to talk to him now for the actual podcast. I mean, I just think this is such a hot button topic that people so fundamentally misunderstand. So let's get into that. And then I'll have more to say at the end of the conversation. (laughs) Uh, For my audience, uh, even though I'm sure maybe some of them have read the book and know that you're in there, can you tell them who you are and what you do and what your specialty is? So uh, I'm an economist. I have worked for a number of years primarily on questions surrounding inequality, particularly between groups, whether they're racial, ethnic, whether they are gender groups or whether they are groups that differ by religious affiliation. And I, I'm the one of the central people to develop a subfield in economics that's referred to as stratification economics. Uh, but in that context, I've worked for, I guess, close to three decades on the question of reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. I think when I first came to the subject, I was a skeptic also. But in 1989, a colleague named Richard America was editing a volume in which he was trying to include a set of essays by economists on how you might measure the bill for reparations. And he came to me and asked me if I would write the introduction. And I said, well, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I think, I think reparations is ethically a sound idea, but it's something that's never going to happen. So why, 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 why waste our time? And, and, and Richard, who is uh, more mature and wise than, than me, said, please read the essays and write the introduction in whatever form or spirit you desire. So I read the essays with the expectation that I was going to actually have something very, very uh, negative to say about reparations ultimately. Uh, but as I read the essays, I became more and more convinced that regardless of the, uh, the low likelihood that reparations might actually be adopted, it was something that really did need to be pursued. And so I began to do research on the subject and have been an advocate of reparations now for about 30 years. What was it about those essays that, that so, convinced you? Yeah, so the essays attempted to do a series of calculations that were associated with trying to estimate the cost of slavery to the people who had been enslaved, uh, trying to estimate the cost of labor market discrimination in terms of lost wages to black Americans, 
And it was it was kind of like the cumulative effect of sort of adding up <laughs> all of these these expenses, uh, yeah. the, the magnitude of these penalties. I said, yes, it's absolutely correct. There should be restitution for this. And, yeah. And and so that's that's really how I came to it. I think it's interesting to, I think a lot of people come at it from a very emotional place, but it's interesting for you to just like be like looking at the numbers and yeah. being like, now hold on a minute. <laughs> I, I'm an economist. What can I say? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, and like, but the numbers were compelling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think because it's hard for people to understand, like how, how would you qualify that monetarily? Yeah. So like, what were, what was the argument? Like it was, you said it was sort of like, how much did this cost people in terms of like yeah. it, what they would have been paid for this work or like what was it breaking down? So in the old days, that was the way in which the estimates were constructed of the cost of slavery to the enslaved was, mm-hmm. you know, what what were the wages that they were not paid as a consequence right. of enslavement? Uh, and, and what would the magnitude of that have been? In, in right. more recent work, the political scientist Thomas Kramer at the University of Connecticut says, well, no, you should really think about uh, the process of enslavement as complete stolen time from the individuals who have been subjected to slavery. And so he's crafted some estimates of what the worth of the entire day would be, seven days a week, uh, Mm -hmm. to the individuals who were enslaved. Uh, But there's another avenue that, that I pursued in some of my own work, which was to focus on, um, the, the 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 lost restitution that was not mm-hmm. given to the formerly enslaved upon emancipation. So, you know, there's, there's kind of, some people think that this is a, kind of a legendary fiction that the formerly enslaved were promised 40 acre land grants, but it's, it's right. not a fiction at all. And it's a promise that was unfulfilled because President Andrew Johnson reversed the policy restored the land that was supposed to go to the formerly enslaved to the slaveholders in the aftermath of the war. And so, uh, so one, one way of estimating what was lost is to try to calculate the present value of the 40 million acres total that should have been assigned to the formerly enslaved. And that gives you a number somewhere between four to $6 trillion. Oh my God. Well, okay. Yeah. That's what I was asking because I know that they, I think people think like, oh, it's impossible to know who was enslaved and who wasn't, but they kept like very meticulous records genealogically, I think. So like, would it be, uh, 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 the same amount to every, every black person or would it be, uh, like broken up by like, okay, so we traced your family to here and you know, no. So the, the criteria that I have in mind, uh, and that Kirsten Mullen and I explicate in our new book, From Here to Equality, is, is uh, that there should be two standards for eligibility. The first is what we call a lineage standard, and that links directly to what you're talking about, which is um, an individual would have to show that they had at least one ancestor who mm-hmm. was enslaved in the United States. And, and that's it. Uh, it's, not a question, it's not a question of degrees of blackness or anything like that. Well, at least one ancestor. The second thing is an identity standard. So for at least 12 years before the enactment of a reparations program or uh, the enactment of a study commission for a reparations program, an individual would have had to have self-identified as Black, Negro, or African-American. 
So it's mm-hmm. a matter of self-classification and self-classification that takes place at a time in which there's no obvious financial benefit to that self-classification. So th- those are the two, the, the two criteria. You're talking about like the census? Uh, yeah, so individuals could self could could uh, could make public their self report on their race in the census, and that would that would turn the trick. So, let's say okay, let's go back for a second. Like, how would you how do you define reparations? Because I think people have either not heard of it or they've heard of it in terms of like like a joke or something. Yeah. So the way we define it, and from here to equality, is as a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. So that's mm-hmm. our general definition. And so that's all-encompassing. It, it's not specific to the case of Black American descendants right. of U.S. slavery, but that's the general definition. Uh, and by acknowledgement, we mean that the culpable party uh, mm-hmm. recognizes that they have committed an atrocity and that they benefited from the atrocity. Not even that long ago. Well, well, you know, I, I'm, you know, in the work that we're doing, we're not talking exclusively about slavery. Exclusively about yeah. slavery, right? Yeah, I mean, we we include on our bill of particulars, especially the nearly century-long period of legal segregation in the United States, coupled with mm-hmm. white terror campaigns that repeatedly took place. I guess the most famous is probably uh, the Tulsa, Oklahoma case, but. That was only one of virtually a hundred of these types of episodes that took place right. uh, between the end of the Civil War and the 1940s. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, and and in addition, we think that the Bill of Particulars must also include what happened in the aftermath of the civil rights legislation of 19 of the 1960s, where you have ongoing mass incarceration, right. anti-black police violence. Sustained discrimination in employment, housing, and credit markets. And then perhaps the thing that's most significant from my standpoint as one of these numbers-oriented economists, the immense racial wealth gap, where in, right. yeah, in the present moment, uh, yes. Blacks are about 13% of the nation's population, but only possess about 2.6% of the nation's wealth. And, and you know, I would argue that that's the cumulative intergenerational effect of all of these economic harms and damages that have been imposed on uh, Black Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved here. Right. And and like, <clears throat> yes, it's because there there's no ability to accumulate generational wealth, right. which I think right. people don't realize. They just take into account like, I talk about this a lot in my book, like income versus like generational wealth, which I think people, you know, yeah. uh, conflate. They conflate the um, two frequently and they're very different. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's absolutely right. Wealth gives you much greater, a much greater path towards economic right. security and well-being because wealth can replace income when income is right. lost, but exactly. not vice versa. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. What are the biggest misconceptions about reparations, um, and and what is the truth, basically? Wow, because uh, people get so worked up. Let me let me change it. Yeah, white people get so worked up about it, and they're like, "Well, I didn't enslave anyone," and I'm like, "I can't, yeah. I can't talk to you." So, like, I don't know. Yeah, so there's kind of two ways in which I think about about trying to talk about that. 
the, the first is it's not a matter of individual guilt. Right. It's a matter of national responsibility. And it's the federal government that's the culpable party. And we require policies, new policies to reverse the effects of racialized policies that have created these types of inequalities in wealth. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and those, those policies have to be enacted by the, the, the Congress of the United States. So, so that, that's the first point. Uh, we are not asking in the context of our version of a reparations project, we're not asking individuals, white or black, to pump, to pump their personal funds into a, right. into a reparations pot. Okay, so that, that right. that's that's the first response. But the, the second response, though, is that there are certain advantages that have been associated with what we observe as this immense wealth wealth gap that are specific mm -hmm. to white Americans, regardless of when they came to the United States or mm -hmm. uh, or whether or not their families were slaveholders. Mm -hmm. One thing that is 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 a key point to make though, if an individual has a family that has roots in the South and they're white, they need to look very carefully at their family's history. They might well have been slaveholders. Because if you if you think about it, in the states of South Carolina and Mississippi, more than half of all white folks were in families that owned slaves. Yes. Okay. That was uh, kind of highlighted for me when um, the whole thing happened with the bird watching in in, oh, New, York, in New York City, uh, in yeah. New York City. Yeah. and people. I saw people on Twitter, which like I don't want to take credit for thinking of this, but like people on Twitter were like, "There is nothing more indicative of America than the fact that they have the same last name. Yes. That she's white yes. and he's black, and they have the same last, last name. name." And the yeah. And the reason for that is obviously because like slave uh, slave owners would give their slaves their last name or they would take their last name or whatever. Or the, or the enslaved, was, the enslaved folks were their children in many cases. Yes, yeah. yes, through through sexual assault and rape. Yeah. So like it was just so I was like, oh, my God, this is like it, even if you think it's not all around you or it's not affecting you like it. it that was like such a modern day example. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, so, yeah. I, I hear this trope all the time that only 2% of white Southerners own slaves. And there's no data to support that. The census data makes it clear that in virtually all of the Southern states, at least 25% of, of households own slaves. Yeah. I mean, I think people are like, well, I don't want to seem bad and I don't want to feel guilty about this or whatever. But like, I think it's a f also like a fundamental misunderstanding of taking responsibility and also a fundamental like that makes them feel like, well, then that says I'm bad, which it doesn't. No, and also a misunderstanding of the way that the federal budget works. Like they're like, well, where it's the same where's with the M4A. Where it was like, <laughs> where's the money going to come from? And it's like, well, I don't know where, why is the defense budget in the trillions? Like, let's talk about that. Or like they, you know, I think they, they're like, they think that they're going, white people think that they are going to lose something like by giving black people money. And also I think there's a fear of like, well, no, if we give them money, like they'll be, we won't be able to control them. And that's like the deeper, more sinister, I think, of that part yeah. of it. Yeah. 
I, I, I think that what you said, though, about the whole way in which people think about federal government finances is, is crucial. Uh, so, you know, in my old age, I have come to be uh, very enthusiastic about the perspective of the modern monetary theorists. And mm. uh, from, from their point of view, the uh, federal government is not constrained by tax revenues right. in its spending that the, the key constraint is whether or not the new expenditure triggers any significant amount of inflation. So you don't want to depreciate the currency. So right. that, yeah, uh, you don't want to risk, especially going into hyperinflation. So, uh, so that any new expenditure would require some measure of caution about what the inflation risk is. And that would include expenditures on, uh, uh, for the purposes of reparations. Uh, but there are ways in which we can structure. And if we're in the midst of a depression right. like we are now, you know, the $2.2 trillion that were injected into the economy under the CARES Act, there's no sign of any kind of inflationary effect. So, uh, so that's, that's the key thing. You don't, you don't have to borrow to spend. You don't have to tax to spend. Uh, you can, but the primary reason you might tax at all is if you need to restrain inflation. So uh, people would have to apply for reparations, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. They'd have to place a claim with a uh, with an adjudicating agency, and an individual would have to meet the two criteria that right. we talked about. And uh, and in fact, on in terms of the first one, the lineage criterion, in our book, we talk about the possibility of the federal government providing agency support for people to uh, establish their genealogical link to somebody who was enslaved in the United States. So that, that could be a provision. People make the claim and then they could get help in, in terms yeah. of trying to establish their eligibility. Have other countries done things similar to this? Uh, similar to a reparations project? Yeah, similar, similar to a reparations project. Well, I think the most significant one overseas that people typically uh, refer to is the, uh, the German government's payments of reparations to victims of the Holocaust. Right. Uh, the most significant case in the American context, depending upon... Well, this is contingent on how you interpret whether or not there have actually been reparations initiatives on behalf of Native Americans. And that's what I was thinking. That, that's a, that's a fuzzy question. I mean, it, yeah, but uh, but if we if we leave if we set that one aside, a clear example of American reparations payments are the uh, the the compensation that was given to Japanese Americans for being unjustly incarcerated during World War II. Uh, right. Yeah. And so uh, I think that that's a very, very uh, compelling precedent to think about in the context of reparations for black American descendants of U.S. slavery. I wonder if people are like, well, the government did that to the Japanese, so the government should pay. Whereas, like, I think for reparations for for um, ancestors of, of enslaved people, like enslaved black Americans, like it would be like there's this element of taking responsibility that white people just do not want to do. Yeah. But I mean, from my perspective, the government is the culpable party with respect Absolutely. to the atrocities inflicted on black Americans. Absolutely. Um, you know, because it's the government that either through its action or inaction 
sanctioned all of these mm -hmm. atrocities. And of course, it's 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 it was national law that treated slavery as something that was a legal institution until right. the uh, until the Thirteenth Amendment was introduced. And, and and even there, the Thirteenth Amendment has an exception clause if people are uh, if people are put into prison. Let's pause right here, and we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. And we're back. So, uh, so you have a plan for executing reparations. Um, so are there other ideas that people have of how it would work? Like other than what you're putting forth, are there like other schools of thought of like, okay, this is how it would work. This is how it would work. Well, I think the, the, the real dividing line between the position we take and that, that some others have taken is our focus on the importance for both substantive and symbolic reasons of uh, direct payments to eligible recipients. Whether or not those payments take the form of outright cash or whether they take the form of a trust account or an endowment, uh, you know, those, those are some issues that need to be resolved, but we think it's really important that direct payments be made to eligible recipients. And I think there are other folks who talk about more indirect routes. Uh, and we don't think that the more indirect routes like for example, neighborhood or community development projects uh, are going to be as effective in terms of the precision of delivery of the resources to the people who merit the resources uh, as a justice claim. Uh, right. For example, in, in a world where we have massive degrees of gentrification of formerly black neighborhoods, then it becomes very difficult to talk about using the neighborhood level as, as a site for right. uh, for providing reparations payments, so so that may be the most important uh, distinction between our our approach and the approach that some others have taken is that we really do want payments to be made directly to eligible recipients. I mean, similar to what they were doing with sending payments for COVID, although that was kind of garbage. Well, but. I, I mean, I, I would like to trace the parallel more to <laughs> other types of reparations initiatives mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, in the case of the German reparations, direct payments were made to victims of the Holocaust and their descendants. And in the case of uh, Japanese American reparations, reparations were made directly to the victims of the uh, mass incarceration. So, um, so that that's where I think there there may be some dispute between the way we talk about it and from here to equality and the way other folks have have talked about it. How much would each I know you said in general, but how much would each black American receive then? So uh, it depends upon what your estimate is of the total amount of wealth in the United States. And I've seen estimates that run anywhere from 100 trillion to 115 trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. So in that interval, then we're talking about somewhere in the vicinity between 10 to 15 trillion dollars that would be required to eliminate the differential in the share of wealth that's held by Black Americans relative to their share of the population. Right. And so then the amounts could run anywhere from approximately $250,000 to $350,000 per person. Oh my, that's life-changing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, oh, man. It's, 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 it's world-changing in terms of 
who's there available are notions to do what? of, of, of totally. ethics and opportunity yeah how do you i mean uh, uh this is a, a bullshit argument but i'll make it like what about like white people who are like i'm poor i don't have white privilege like i haven't benefited from anything or whatever i gave them a stupid voice but you yeah. understand <laughs> yeah no no and and actually I, I i somewhat understand that sentiment even if i'm not uh even if i'm not white um so, so, so let me say two things. First, the position of folks who are poor and white is still better than the position of many black Americans. So right. for example, whites who are in the lowest quintile of the income distribution, that is the bottom 20% in terms of income, actually have a higher median wealth than all black Americans taken together. Wow. So, so that's my first first response is that there is something different about being poor and white than being poor and black. Uh, but my second response is, well, there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't have an initiative, a policy initiative to address overall wealth inequality in the United States. There it is. As well as the black-white wealth gap. And you, you, as you know, I'm actually an advocate of what, what people refer to as the baby bonds proposal, which is mm -hmm. the idea of giving every newborn infant a trust fund at birth that is calibrated on the basis of their parents' level of wealth. And right. this so would be for everybody. This would be for mm -hmm. every child. Uh, so yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm strongly in favor of finding ways to address overall wealth inequality, but the the reparations project is specific to racial wealth inequality. I personally am like big into UBI, which is sort of similar to, to baby bonds or fall, falls into an umbrella. Um, but yeah, like I, I think people think that it's a, a pie, like a slice of pie. And they're like, well, I don't get any pie. And it's like, it's a different pie. Right, You're getting a right. different pie. That's right. That's right. And we can have multiple pies. <laughs> exactly. Like we can address poverty in general too. In terms of addressing poverty in general, you know, there's another policy that I'm an advocate of, which is a federal job guarantee, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, we can we can we can have an argument over UBI versus federal job guarantee. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, I say in the best of all possible worlds, we have both. Uh, right. Uh, but but yeah, there there's a number of policies that we have not embraced in the United States that would be highly transformative, that would be beneficial to all Americans. But I think we have to, at some point, because it's 155 years overdue, address the debt that is owed to Black American descendants of slavery. Absolutely. And I think also we don't teach it in school. So like white people are like, well, what what did they actually do? And it's like, look around. <laughs> they built everything. Are you kidding? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Um, there's, a, there's a whole chapter of our book that's called uh, Who Reaped the Fruits of Slavery? And, uh, and it's, it's really, you know, we learned a lot in the process of doing the research for the book. And one thing that we weren't aware of was the intimate relationship between the cotton trade and the development of New York City. Uh, so, oh. so, so this is very much of a nationwide phenomenon in terms of economic development and slavery disproportionately practiced in the U.S. South. Uh, wow. So it's not just a matter of Southern economic development. It was national economic development that was fueled, uh, particularly through the importance of the of the cotton sector in the United States. Wow. So what kind of support 
would this plan need to be successful? Uh, well, I mean, it would need significant popular support because uh, from our perspective, you don't want to do this through the judicial system. You want congressional legislation. And so mm. for congressional legislation to be implemented, it would require uh, a substantial portion of the American people to be committed to the idea that this is the right thing to do. And how do we get there? <laughs> Uh, I remember, you know, you said in the beginning of this that like even you were skeptical and like you see it as something that is worth pursuing, but also like seems so far off. Like how how do how do we get there? Well, I'm, I'm hopeful that conversations like this one that will be listened to and heard uh, might uh, encourage people to think somewhat differently about reparations if they have a negative uh, if they have a negative opinion. Uh, but I, I will say this, there, there are some signs of optimism. Uh, in the year 2000, when Michael Dawson and Ravana Popoff performed a survey about attitudes towards reparations, they found that only 4% of white Americans endorsed reparations for black Americans. Uh, today, that figure appears to be closer to 20% with almost half of millennials saying that they support the idea of reparations for black Americans. Uh, so I, 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 I think that that's, you know, 20% is not a, a massive number uh, for us to really be talking about uh, congressional action on behalf of reparations that would be uh, positive action. We probably have right. to get closer to 40% of white Americans to say that this is the right thing to do. But, yeah. but the direction is, the, 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 the pendulum is swinging in the right direction. And so I think that as we have more and more conversations like this, where we uh, try to clarify some of the areas of confusion that people have about the idea, uh, you know, it, it, it may progressively lead to uh, a, a much greater opportunity for it to happen. All right, it's time for one last break, and then we'll be right back. And we're back. Okay, so I feel like there would be some discussion if if Black people were given that amount of money. I feel like there would be, like, a huge discussion of like controlling what they spend it on or being like well we have to make sure that that they're not like buying cars or or whatever like how do you how do you push back against that and like what what sort of you know i just can see that bullshit happening and like what what is the response to that i think that that's already happening i i think that that's one of the criticisms or complaints that's raised about reparations is that You'll give black people this money and they'll do stupid things with it. So, you know, is is there a component of this question that's really uh, that's really laced with good old fashioned American racism? Specifically anti-black racism, probably revolving around like yeah. stereotypes involving, I don't know, rappers or whatever. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, yeah. the bling factor or whatever. What What is interesting mm -hmm. is that the, the the best available evidence we have is. If you take into account household income, there is no significant difference in savings rates between blacks and whites. And in a number of income categories, blacks actually have a higher, slightly higher savings rate. So, yeah. so this notion that people uh, that blacks are less frugal than whites is really not borne out by the data. But okay, mm -hmm. all of that said, 
uh, I've always felt that financial literacy is not particularly meaningful if you have no finances to manage. Yes. But if you're going to give a community of people a significant increase in their wealth position, then it might well make a great deal of sense to provide them with some guidance or instruction that they can choose to use or not about right. how to manage their finances. And we might want to call this uh, pre-reparations preparation. And, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm entirely uh, receptive to the idea of people getting information about how best to manage their resources uh, when they get a significant new infusion of resources. So, what, I mean, I think I know the answer, but like, why is this such a political conversation? I don't understand how like racism became the the like pet project of the right. <laughs> and, and he like the same way, like, why are masks a problem for the right and not for the left? Like, what are we doing? Like, why? Why is this like I mean, why is this so political? Uh, well, I mean, there's a sense in which everything is political. Uh, True. But I, I think what you, what you mean is why is this so uh, inflammatory for some people? Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, I, I think part of that has to do with good old-fashioned American racism and an unwillingness to admit or acknowledge uh, the ways in which white supremacy has shaped our nation. It's individualism. People want to think, well, I did good or I did bad, yeah. and that's all it's about. Right. And, and you know, it's interesting because I remember at the point at which Black Americans were denied the 40-acre land grants, mm -hmm. uh, significant numbers of white Americans were given 160-acre land grants through the Homestead Acts in the western part of the United States on territory mm -hmm. that had been taken from the Native American population. Right. These 160 acre land grants translate into a situation where at least 45 million currently living white Americans are beneficiaries from the families that receive those uh, those those land allocations. So we could we could view that as perhaps one of the most significant handouts that the federal government ever made. Mm -hmm. uh, so people who think that they've sort of made it on their own without paying attention to what they have gained from their parents and their grandparents in the way of resources are to some degree being dishonest. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's, it's not the case that virtually any of us have accomplished what we've accomplished without any support or help from the previous generation. What's really critical is the magnitude of the, the amount of support that, be, that was provided by the previous generation. Uh, I, I know that you know one of the one of the hyper examples is probably uh, the billionaire Mark Zuckerberg. And if you look at the question of how his whole financial empire was fused and fueled with support from his parents, uh, right. that's extremely striking. It, it's it's not clear that in all cases where families provide those kinds of resources, you become a billionaire. Right. But it's probably the case that without those resources, he would not have become a billionaire. He was already at Harvard. Also, Harvard. He, he, he comes out of Harvard without any debt. Uh, his initial right. his initial project with Facebook is actually funded by his father. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. He really made money off misogyny. Uh, 
so what would um what would successful results look like? What are the ideal results for America from reparations? I, I think the ideal result would be, as as I've suggested, uh, erasure of the racial wealth gap, creating a completely different opportunity environment for Black Americans. I mean, mm-hmm. what I would argue is. Black Americans have consistently been denied full citizenship in the United States. And what a reparations program would do is provide the material basis for full citizenship. That's something that has never been done in this country. Uh, So, and at that point, I would hope that any other kinds of indignities and atrocities that need to be addressed that that can't be handled by the provision of monetary reparations mm-hmm. uh, would also be taken care of. So, for example, uh, I, I don't believe anti-Black police of police violence would be stopped by reparations payments to Black Americans. I mean, we, right. we, we re- would require certain things like elimination of qualified immunity, demilitarization, uh, alterations in the kinds of penalties that the police would uh would would incur for engaging mm-hmm. in what's essentially criminal acts. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we would have to change those kinds of conditions. It would not be enough to provide reparations to eliminate that problem. And so I would hope that the other kinds of dimensions of racial injustice that can't be handled exclusively by a reparations initiative would also be taken into account. And then the the follow-on to that would be uh would be closure the uh the acknowledgement on the part of black americans and the united states government the mutual acknowledgement that the debt has been paid yeah where can people find out more about this and and if they want to read more about it after hearing this so the longer version is in our book from here to equality Mm -hmm. reparations uh, for Black Americans in the 21st Century, which is available from the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, a shorter version that is an extension and expansion of the analysis in the book is a, a report that Kirsten Mullen and I prepared for the Roosevelt Institute called Resurrecting the Promise of 40 Acres, and it's available online from the Roosevelt Institution. You can Institute. You can just type in our names and Roosevelt Institute, and I think the report should pop up. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think this will be like really eye-opening for the listeners, so I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Gabby, as always. I love this conversation. I love how much information we were able to pack into this episode. I think it's so necessary and so important, and I feel like it's one of the most misunderstood things I've only really heard of reparations in terms of white people being upset about it and like TV and movies making a joke out of it. I I just think even if you don't have an emotional attachment to the idea, the numbers do not lie and the numbers are stark. Um, And there's a lot of stuff that needs to change. Obviously, we talked about all sorts of things, but Reparations is a huge part of it, especially reparations, obviously, in this specific context for um, the ancestors of formerly enslaved people. It was not that long ago, slavery. It really wasn't. We think of it as being like, oh, it was had nothing to do with me it was so long ago. It was not that long ago. And white people in this country do not take responsibility for anything. They do not take responsibility 
for having Confederate statues up. I mean, as a Jew, right? In Germany, they don't have they don't have statues of Hitler. <laughs> they don't they're not you're not allowed to have a swastika. Like they don't they don't fucks with that. And I just think that like what Professor Darity was talking about at the end, the closure. The closure. Like we owe that. <laughs> we we absolutely owe that. Thank you for listening. Make sure you're subscribed to our show on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineer is Brendan Burns and our audio is mixed by Andy Christens. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Original music is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I say, Look into your politicians that you're electing and look into Congress people that maybe do have reparations in their platforms um, and talk to people about it and share this episode and don't make it a thing that exists in a fantasy world. Make it part of your activism. Okay, I'll see you next week.